Hey guys, this week we've got episode 20 for Pelotero Pickle. Big theme of today's show is college recruiting. How do you go about talking to college coaches? We have a special guest, Dustin Geiger. Check it out. Pickle, pickle, pickle. Welcome to episode 20 of Pelotero Pickle. We are recording on December 28th, 2020. This will be out tomorrow on December 29th. We just had Christmas. The Tampa Bay Rays just uh, traded Snell to the Padres. Uh, Chris's dogs are in the house, and we've got special guest Dustin Geiger, nuclear baseball. What's up? And I clapped after you did. So everything's just all over the place. We have special guest Dustin Geiger today because he sent us some questions specific to high school baseball players. Uh, he asked us, how do you talk to college coaches? How do you deal with failure? How do you find balance as a student athlete between friends, work, commitments outside of the sport? And then he, he made the comment. He, he sent it to me. He said, I just want to be a normal kid. Um, I want to talk on that topic. I'm sure you do as well, Chris. But I thought that was, I felt it when he said that. So let's go from the top. How do you talk to college coaches? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this is a big, big button thing. Everybody wants to obviously play at the next level at college, but what are the questions that need to be asked to a college coach when you are, you know, on that call trying to get a feel for, for the program? It's not just like, Oh, that they have this school and they have all of these, uh, these nice amenities. They have this new facility going in. What are they going to do to make you a better ball player? And, you know, trying to understand what the development is what the development plan is for that school, I think is, is crucial. And when you ask a college coach that like, Hey, what is like, what is your, what does a normal day look like? What is our, what is our, what is our day? So for one, as a college coach, you see that, okay, they actually, they actually care. They, they want to, they want to get better. They want to put the work in. Um, and then for two, it, it's that it kind of makes them think like, okay, well, what are, what are we doing? And, uh, I think it, it, it's super important to, to find that out, not just to, to find your right fit for where you want to be um, for one, two, four years of your life, whatever it may be in college. I think, Chris, how, how, did you, how did you go about your college selection process? You ended up at Assumption College. Yeah, well, I mean, I wasn't good at baseball, so that didn't help. Like, I wasn't good. Um, I was scared. I was, you know being Luke Caldwell's son makes you scared of things. No offense, dad. I love you. You're the man. Um, but we innately, I was built to like have this fear of challenging myself, which ultimately is probably my favorite thing to do now. But um, it was super, and this is not that long ago, guys, like 20 years ago, it, it was, I mean, you just went to school somewhere. It was a recruiting period started after junior summer Um so going into your like going into your senior year, you couldn't talk to people till June first of after like during or after your junior year, right? And most of the conversations were just a phone call or you know a chat here and there. And then I went to Assumption because the coach called me the most, basically. And I knew I could play there. I knew I could compete. I knew guys from the area were going to school there, and that was it. So. Um, ideally I would have liked to have challenged myself more academically and athletically, but I think now it's, it's just, it's easier because there's more lines of communication for kids. Like you can open up conversations with whoever you want. 
through 90,000 mediums. Um, and you can really basically, if you want to go to UCLA, you got to get in touch with the guy from UCLA. And realistically, when push comes to shove, I think every kid needs to do two things. One, be self-aware and be just do whatever they want to do, right? If you're self-aware enough and you're honest with yourself about where you can go, to, like where you can play, just watching the people around you, then you can play there. Um, and you just have to show up. And, 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 you know, we're just caught up in this world where I believe recruiting, you know, you have to get recruited and you have to get calls. Just show up and play, man. Show up and play. Show up and be good. Yeah, I mean, getting recruited certainly helps. In terms of communicating directly with college coaches, you have to understand they're getting just inundated with emails, Twitter messages, phone calls, text. Like, they're getting completely bombarded. Um, they're getting sent numbers. They're getting sent metrics that most of the time they don't care about. I think the number one thing you can do as a player is have a coach that you know reach out to the coach for you. The, the referral is probably the strongest foot in the door you can get. Um, you have to you have to do that in a, in a nice, smooth way. Um, I've had players start to work with me explicitly for, for like referral, and it's not really appreciated when that happens. Where they just like, hey, I want to I want to work with you. Can you talk to this person for me? And it's like, well, I don't know you. I don't know your character. I don't know your work ethic. I don't know anything about you. Just because you want to like come pay me to do a lesson doesn't mean I'm going to stick my neck out for you. So when you start looking at college programs that you want to play for or not college programs, when you look at travel programs you want to play for tap into their, like ask what kind of network they have, who are they going to talk to? Where have they placed players in the past? Have those relationships gone well, or did the kid get there and transfer out after a year? Um, the referral is, is, um, is probably your strongest way to, to reach out. Um, and then it's about being consistent. It's about replying. It's about communicating like when your schedules are, when they can come see you play, are you going to go to their camps on campus? I know it's really messed up with COVID right now. Um, and the whole recruiting landscape is crazy anyway, because rosters are expanded with COVID. It's, it's a tough scene out there, but to me, the number one thing you could do is, is referral. Well, I think that's uh, the whole, the whole landscape now is so weird with everything. Right. So I think it changes everything. I think the dynamic shifted in more ways than one. So maybe I'm the worst person to get advice from because I'm, old i don't know i think one thing too with college recruiting that people are so worried about committing right now like they just like i just want to commit to a college right now because the the clock has been pushed up so much you got guys committing as freshmen sophomores in high school we have eighth graders that commit before they even play a day of varsity baseball like they might not even play varsity baseball for two more years and they're already committed to a, a big time school. So it sets an unrealistic expectation for so many people that, Hey, I have to commit now instead of finding your right fit, allowing your body to mature and developing yourself to putting yourself in the best position to where it is the best fit. You mentioned kickbacks. Like, are you going to a program and you sticking or is it, Hey, you're going to bounce around to four different, to four different colleges in four years. And you're not really going to be able to develop the, the network or the friendships that are, I think, going to help you more in life than just, um, just that I played it, you know, I played college baseball. The, the, the relationships that you build over that span is super important. And if you have the right fit for program and school and city, 
and support system, that's what's going to be more important than, you know, I played at whatever university. Uh, I think that was my, one of the best pieces of advice that I got before I went to school was somebody told me, try to go to a place where even if baseball doesn't work out, you won't be miserable. Um, and, and I think a lot of times that gets overlooked and, you know, to all the points that we're, we've talked about or that have been mentioned so far, it's college is an experience. It's meant to be an experience. And I think uh, there's so much emphasis on all of the urgency and, and desire to want to commit or say that I made a verbal or uh, you know signing a national letter of intent and all those things as much as you know we've talked about these before as much as they're cool and they they have this cachet or give you this this security at the end of the day you've got to come with it when you get to college right you've got to post up and you got to get it done um, both on the field and in the classroom and the weight room so all the things that you think are your security blanket that might make you feel cool in front of all your friends or might make you feel special or be able to post something on Instagram. Like when push comes to shove, those don't matter because you still got to go get it done. And I was watching, um, it's funny. I watched QB one, uh, show on Netflix and it's crazy because you just try to figure out, you know, how the kid, like my, I'm always curious to see how the kids careers ended up. And uh, I think it was season two it was Justin Fields, who's at Ohio state originally committed to Georgia. He's a Georgia kid. And then Sam Hartman, who is at Wake Forest currently. And then uh, Rial Mitchell was, was the other one. And Rial has gone from Iowa state to temple where he committed and he doesn't get many snaps at temple. So those are the, some of the best the top recruited, like top highly rated quarterbacks in the country, uh, top 20 highly rated quarterbacks in the country. Two of them transferred already. Um, and one of them hasn't gotten on the field much. So think about that, put some, some context on that, a little perspective there and, and think about what that means. Thanks, yeah. Jay. In terms of choosing your actual school, having a plan for your major, even if, if you communicate with the coaches and say, I'm going, I'm looking at your school because you offered this major. That's most kids are just looking at baseball. They just say, Hey, I want to go play there because I know the name of the school. So I'm in the college world series. So I'm on TV, whatever. Having that extra, having any, any extra layer of detail about the school, maybe it's the location, maybe it's the school size, maybe it's classroom size, like whatever the reason is beyond baseball. That's going to tell the coach you've done your homework. That's a good thing. How did you guys pick school? Bobby, I kind of know your story a little bit, but you should tell it anyway. Dustin, I don't know yours. Yeah, so my junior year, um, I was starting to get a lot of a lot of recruiting um, interest, and uh, growing up in in Florida, and, yeah, growing up different in, than growing up in New Hampshire, <laughs> Massachusetts. Growing up in Florida, I mean, it was you know Fort Myers every weekend for Perfect Game BCS. Um, it was Orlando for big tournaments, Miami for big tournaments. So we were. We were exposed pretty much year round to the recruiting side. Um, and this is before I think select got to where it was now. Um, sometimes I think it gets a little watered down nowadays. Back then it was, hey, we had guys from all over, you know, all over the state of Florida. We didn't really practice together. We just came together in, in tournaments and played. Um, so I had, a, I had a bunch of interest from uh, Stetson University and up into land, Florida. Um, pretty sure that's where DeGrom went. Uh, and then some other, some like D2s and stuff. And then University of Central Florida 
uh, they came at me the hardest uh, from the younger age. And, you know, lo looking back at it, I probably committed to a college too, too soon. Um, so I give everybody the advice to wait and wait until after your, you know, during your like summer season before your senior year or even into the fall of your senior year to like lock down a commitment. I committed as a, uh, like during my junior high school season. So of my junior, of my junior year. And it was like, okay, well, you know, UCF's an hour away from home. I'm from Merritt Island, Florida, right next to Cocoa Beach. So it was like, okay, we're proximity to home. Parents are going to be able to come watch play. Uh, it's a, it's a huge school, you know, they're developing this new facility. They're putting this new facility into place, which side note wasn't even completed until I would have been out of college. Um, you know, I, I like the coaches, the, the recruiting pitch from the two from uh, Terry Rooney and Cliff Godwin, who were both there at the time, they were both at LSU when they won the national championship. Um, so it was, it, you know, it was this like big draw to go there. So all the positives were there and I, I pulled the trigger on it. And uh, I think it was, I think it was too early to where, you know, I could have had the likes of, I, I had talked to Florida state. I had talked to Miami, but they weren't, like locked in yet because they wanted me to they wanted me to watch me play during my junior junior summer so I think I pulled the trigger too fast on it uh, but I mean it was one of those where I think recruiting was done pretty heavily and that was early back then like junior year was early 10 that's almost late now 12 like 12 years yeah ago, 13 years ago, it was right so but yeah interesting I, I didn't know the right questions to ask. I didn't know any of the right questions to ask. Like I, it's crazy, man. There, I would ask so many different questions now than I would have Hundred percent. There, there's so much, so much that is learned. My, my dad didn't play baseball. He, my dad played baseball until he was 12 years old. I always make the joke that like my dad was terrible at baseball. Um, he, he didn't play past little league. He had a terrible experience when he was a kid. So when I first started playing baseball, it was like. Oh, great. Here we go again. Yeah. And just basing it off of experience was bad. So like, they didn't know they tried their, my parents tried their hardest through the, the college process, through the, um, through the draft process and everything like they, they didn't know. And that's something that hopefully I'm able to, to give my son down the line is just some knowledge right. of, Hey, how, here's how we now, here's how you navigate, not just me, not just us. Like, here's how I help you take control of your career and navigate your own plan. Bobby, how'd you end up at Ovum? That's UVM for anybody that doesn't know. Yeah, University of Vermont no longer has a baseball program, so don't go there if you're trying to play baseball in college. Uh, I actually wanted to go to Dartmouth. Dar Dartmouth was my number one choice. I went on a visit there in state, Ivy League, um, number one choice, and didn't get in. So UVM was kind of my backup. I'd gone up there on a recruiting visit. Um, way up north in Burlington, Vermont. It was cold. On my visit, it was like rainy. They were playing the scrimmage. And I'm like, I could go out there right now and be the starting second baseman. At the time, I was playing second. Like, I could go out there right now. I wanted to be challenged more. Uh, they had a business school. I knew, I knew I wanted to study business. So it was a pretty safe backup for me. Um, ended up being a fantastic four years for me. Um, just kind of stumbled into it more than anything. Coach, Coach Courier. He's now at Fairfield University. Um, did a great job with the program. Looking back, like the number one thing I'd probably look at is from a player development standpoint, like our gym 
at UVM was like a closet. Like it was like, it was an afterthought. They ended up, when I, after I left there, they canceled the gymnastics program and they moved into the gymnastics facility, which is like a 15,000 square foot, like really nice, really legit facility. But before it was like three squat racks, a dumbbell thing. <laughs> it's like nothing. There was nothing there. Uh, the program was run by a former player who's a personal trainer. No, nothing bad to say about him in particular, but it wasn't like this dedicated coach building real programs. It was just like a printout. I still have it. It's just super generic programming. Um, you know, support from the university in terms of like what your travel's like, what what kind of equipment is there. Like I got one pair of batting gloves a year. Like we had, More to, than I got. We, we had to, we had to fundraise, we had to fundraise for cleats and our Florida trip, which is part of it. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that <clears throat> to be like unthankful for the opportunity, but like if you're going to school and you're trying to play baseball competitively, like selling t-shirts in your dorm isn't conductive to like life. For uh, three, for three years, I didn't have a, we didn't have a scheduled team lift because we didn't have anybody on our staff that a cared enough about it. The, the head coaching job was part-time first of all. So that wasn't it. Um, yeah. All the things you're saying, I, I, I would play the one up game with you, but so to that point, these are all questions that I would have asked I, I would have said, you know, what's the strength and conditioning schedule? Um, what's our, where, what's our, what are our practice times? Like who's in charge of our strength and conditioning? We didn't have a strength coach at the school. And now again, everything's changed, right? Like major division ones have, strength coaches on every team right now. I, our former trainer with the Blue Jays is uh, uh, Chris Joyner is the strength coach for University of Auburn baseball and not like University of Auburn, like University of Auburn baseball. So that's crazy. Um, but yeah, I, I know all the things that you're talking about and you've got to be one of only probably six people in the history of the world to go from New Hampshire and find a place further North to play baseball at, which is crazy. Well, you knew university of New Hampshire had already canceled their baseball program. Yeah. If, if UNH had a baseball program, they did an article, I think my sophomore year when I was at UVM of all the players. So we had players that went to Maine. We had players that went to UVM players that went to uh, just all the, all the certain, I mean, they could have, <laughs> I, I definitely would have gone to UNH if they had a baseball program. I would have, you know, in-state guy play for your, for where you're from i, I would have for sure Geiger, you gotta understand how ridiculous it is that we went to northern climates to play baseball like you don't know anything about that i mean you ended up did you, you played in probably like boise with the cubs right and stuff like, like you played in some cold climates but it was later because like the affiliated season doesn't start till april like yeah, you have to understand mark february and march in these places is like you want to stick a needle through your eye when trying to get a hit so funny. Yeah, I mean, funny enough with that, um, there was two, two affiliates that were in the North Boise. I skipped over and they were, they were short season. So they didn't start their season until the end of June anyway. And then, uh, Peoria, Illinois was our, was our low A in the Midwest league. And the first year, my first full season, I went to extended and then started like three weeks in the AZL before jumping to Peoria. So I didn't jump in until July. And then the next year, 2012, I was supposed to break camp, ended up breaking my handmade bone on the last day of spring training. So I missed the first just under, just under two months of the, the season. So I missed the cold again. 
So you don't know anything about the cold. You don't. You know nothing about hitting in the cold. The the coldest that I ever played in, and this you guys are gonna like make fun of me for this. Uh, it got just below freezing in Hermosillo and Mexican winter ball oh. in 2018, and it was like 30. Yeah, and no snow. It, like there wasn't like it was. It wasn't. There's zero precipitation every, every <laughs> single year in UVM. Every single year we played at least one game with snow falling. Yeah, um, the coldest I've ever been was at a game at Central Connecticut. I don't know what the temperature was, but the wind chill was like negative. It had to be like 10 degrees. My glove was frozen open. I couldn't close my glove. We all had hand warmers in our back pockets. We, between every pitch, we put our hand in our back pocket. Yeah. My I forget what year. My sophomore junior. We came back from our Florida trip. So like, hey, we came back from Florida into a blizzard. Our our light tower had fallen into the like fell into our field, and we had to, we got home from our trip and had to shovel our cars out for like oh. an hour just to get to just to get home. That's tough. Brutal. Playing in the cold, ain't it? I played I played in the coldest recorded doubleheader in doubleheader in the history of Major League Baseball. So we played uh, the Twins. We're playing the Blue Jays. Ironic, both teams I played for. Uh, 31 degrees at first pitch of game one. Uh, by the night game, I don't, it was a one, it was a split, so I don't, it probably got to like 20 by the night or 15 with the wind chill. And I tell you what, I didn't even feel cold during the game because we had, I was like, oh, I have my little thing on because I'm like, oh, we did this every weekend in college. Like, I played a doubleheader at Merrimack one time, I remember. When we got down the game, we had as part of our our fundraise, our our gear that we had to buy, we buy these big like football. I I told the team we we're getting the football jackets one year because it was so cold, and I raised enough money every year that I could just get all the gear. But uh, yeah, it was bad. I went I went Johnny Tough Guy, and I went short sleeves, eye black every game because to me it was just you win the mental battle. Yeah, I tried to wear as many layers as possible where I could still move. I would come back from Florida every year hitting probably like four fifty, and then. Three weeks later, a month later, I'd be hitting 305 or 270 because you can't feel your hands outside. And we're using wood, too. So think about that. How much of an idiot am I? I went to a school like where academically I feel like I wasn't challenged. We won 44 games in four years, and I had to switch to wooden bats, and it was in the cold. So basically, setting your head up against the wall. I made the worst college decision ever. It just made you mentally tough. Oh, yeah. That's that what it was. That, that, we'll go with that. <laughs> you know what? Practicing every day in nice warm weather or being outside in the field, having three-hour cage sessions, that wouldn't have made me mentally tough at Akron College or at Rawlins right. or at University of Tampa. I needed to go. You know what I call that when people call it mental toughness? I call it I call it being an idiot, basically, <laughs> right? You know, like, oh, you're building mental toughness there. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just an idiot. No, no, no. This sucks. I don't like, like all it. This stuff. Because I can build mental me any better. Like <laughs> if if I really want to build mental toughness, like I can walk, go walk on hot coals, or like you know, lay on the needle boards. Yeah. Oh, mental tough. Like I don't need to be cold and <laughs> and want to kill myself at school. You know. Yeah, any minute. Yeah. All right, let's go next topic because we 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 went, went many tangents on that one. Yeah. Uh, dealing with failure, and I think specific to college players, whether maybe you go to a tournament or maybe you go to a showcase, you just bomb. Uh, there was a, a popular tweet over the weekend about a pitcher who was going to get drafted, got knocked around quite a bit. And he's like, oh, I realized I actually wanted to see how I responded to failure. I'm sure he got drafted. I didn't really look into the player very much, but uh, dealing with failure. You want to frame the question specific to what, what you were thinking? or uh, No, I mean, I, my thought was, you know, talking about a high school or high school or college age player. Um, a lot of times you don't you don't fail until you get to that point. You know, I, for me, I was fortunate that I didn't I didn't fail until I got to Pro Bowl. 
um, high school was a breeze. The you know, jumping, you know, jumping right into pro ball was the first time. It's like, whoa, okay, these guys, everybody here is the best at their their school. It's like that wasn't you know best at their school or best in the academy, whatever it was. That's why they're here. I think a lot of times that happens and that happens in college as well. I remember on a pickle episode in the past, you guys talked about like, Hey, whatever you did in high school, like it doesn't matter anymore. You can't, you can't leverage it. And like we said earlier in this episode about that's your, your comfort factor. It's gone. You're, you're just another guy. You're starting fresh. You're with a zero, zero, you know, zero, zero, zero batting average, whatever. Um, so, you know, when we look at it from that, that aspect of, the first time you fail, how do you respond? You know, do you crumble to it? Um, do you understand that there are people out there looking to see how you react when you fail? Uh, it, and it, and it sucks, you know, failures, failures, never fun, but there's always so much that can be learned from it. The, you know, which is so cliche to say, but you, you learn through your failures. If you just blow up every time you fail, if you spike a helmet, spike a bat every time you, uh, every time you strike out, every time you, you know, you miss a ball, then you're not getting any better from that. And people get super turned off by it. So from the high school player that, that sees that, Hey, it's not the end of the world. Watch, watch big league baseball guys, make errors, guys strike out, you know, guys walk a guy on four pitches, but for the most part, they don't blow up very often. Um, and who, who was it with the pirates a few years ago that, um, Rodriguez just blew uh, up the Gatorade cooler. Yeah. Kind of boxing match with the Gatorade cooler. Yeah, like, um, I was talking to to a coach that had him when they were in Philly, and he's like nicest guy ever. Like, will do great. anything. Super, super great guy. But so many people remember him because he blew up on the water cooler. Like that was such a big thing because it was funny to watch. But that's how he reacted to that. That failure in that moment just got so bottled up that he exploded like literally exploded i think in the, in the big leagues at least you can go down the tunnel and blow up yeah don't you have like a joe mauer story about <laughs> a <couple>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, joe mauer the most like understated calm just no reaction uh, i'm gonna tell that story in a minute i want to yeah. know did you guys have anybody telling you this stuff when you were young did you have anybody like explaining this to you nobody explained it it was it was hey don't don't do that there was never a why like, Hey, wh why, why, why don't I show this? Like, like, this is how I'm, this is how I'm feeling in the moment. Like, why don't I show it? Um, I think it, for me, it was just something that I didn't want to, you know, show my butt in a sense. Yeah. Like I thought it made me look bad. I thought it was a bad representation of, uh, of myself, of my, the, the team I was playing for and, you know, of my parents in the stands, um, that, that all kind of at a young age that kind of all went through my head when dealing with it. And like I said, too, like I didn't really fail very much in at the high school level. Yeah. I'd make errors. Um, didn't strike out a lot, had a lot of success, hit the ball really well. So like, I didn't even have to really learn like what it was like to fail until years later when it was like, it mattered. And then if you showed your butt and you were, you were a bad, you know, um, bad reaction guy to, to failure. Now the front office staff labels you as like a hothead. And, right. you know, if he, if he doesn't succeed, he, he freaks out and that's not going to play at the highest level when, Hey, like if you compound 40, 40, 50,000 people in the stands with your inability to control your emotions, like you're not going to help the ball club win. 
I didn't have it. I didn't, I literally had no one that talked to me about dealing with failure. My dad taught me about compete, right? But he was a pitcher who his dad was very critical of him, military background, right? Like his, his father was a, in the army. So my dad would strike out 14 and walk two and throw a two hit shutout. And it was always, why'd you walk two guys, right? Instead of great job or, you know, pat on the back. So I, I, as coming from a, seeing it from a pitcher side, not to say that it's easier, it definitely is, but uh, you know, not to be critical of it. I didn't understand that it was okay to go for eight. Like I didn't, it was, that was unacceptable at my house. Right. And you guys know me. I mean, I'm obviously much more low key than I was then in terms of my emotions, but I'm definitely extrovert, you know, think a lot, mind's going. So when I went 0 for 8 in high school, it's like the world was ending, right? And that happened. I wasn't that good in high school. Like I, it, you know, my, my freshman year, I played freshman baseball. My sophomore year, I played JV baseball. And those both went pretty well. My junior year, I didn't start my first varsity game. Like I was on the bench. <laughs> And, you know, I had to grind and claw to kind of get things there. But I didn't know – nobody ever talked to me about this stuff. Nobody ever talked to me about, hey, it's okay to go for four. Like, you know, you don't have to like it, but, like, you can live with it. And those four at-bats don't matter going to the next one. So I learned more about all this stuff. And really, I didn't learn anything in college either. I had to build my own kind of defenses to all of it. But when I got to professional baseball and got to be around Rich Gedman was really when I – I was able to build in these these kind of checkpoints for how to, I guess, just check back in during games or during seasons. Or uh, And I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish somebody had explained it to me when I was younger because I think that's the part that can really separate you. Like, you, Bobby, you were talking about that, the pitcher that got, uh, you know, that was supposed to get drafted, and he's like, I didn't really realize the body language thing, you know. And people are looking at it all the time. To me, it's more about how you respond to failure than it is anything else and success. Yeah, my my high school coach, Mike Lee. How you doing, Coach Lee? Hope you're listening to this. I'll send the link. He uh, he was my all-star coach. So his son was one year younger than me coming up through Little League. And he coached the all-star teams when I was uh, 10 years old and when I was 12 years old. So I got to be around him quite a bit at a young age. And he was a big uh, mental game of baseball guy the book mental game of baseball he would always talk about the precious present um to the point that it was like a running joke among the among the players like precious present precious present um but the the lesson kind of sank home with me so um understanding you know being in the moment and reading that book there were things about um i remember reading about ozzy smith and how like there's you know 230 pitches in the game and you have to be ready for one because that ball might be hit so you know, always staying ready for that one opportunity to make a difference in the game was kind of where my headspace was at all times. It was just be ready always. <clears throat> there were certainly times when emotions kind of got the best of me. And I, I think I remember my my sophomore year, or no, my senior year in college, my thumb was injured. I was super frustrated. I would I was making outs and just blew up a couple of times. One time the dean of the business school was at the game and I like came in the dugout and slammed my helmet. Like I couldn't hit. My thumb was literally broken. Like I need I had surgery on it like a week later. She's like, calm down. And I like gave her the nastiest look. <laughs> like, what am I doing? It was like a out-of-body experience. I'm like, I need to I need to back up a little bit mentally from where I'm at right now because I'm not in a good place. I was so frustrated. Um, so the lesson there is like don't bring your off the field stuff onto the field. 
like when you cross the line, right, when you when you check in to the when you get to the clubhouse that day, like leave it behind you. You got to be able to stay in the moment and not let that stuff affect you because it will. And it'll, we, Chris, we've talked about this with you, just your whole mental emotional state going into trying to perform. If you're not there, if you're not there, no, if you're not in the now, you're not gonna you're not gonna be the best player you can be. We had Steve Springer on about you know confident guy, not not confident guy, like. If you're trying to be really good, and this is why I don't like the rah-rah stuff that happens with kids planning out bat flips and stuff, like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Don't get excited about it. Like, be happy and celebrate with your teammates and stuff. But some of the stuff goes so far over the top. What Dustin was saying earlier about you might be in front of forty thousand people. If if you're trying to bat flip, like you better be really good, really, really, really good. To, to really, really good. And to get there and then the number of people that are making judgments on you to get to that point, like if you're like bat flipping when you're 18 years old against some slapdick outfielder who's not a pitcher and it's an 18-3 game and you think it's cool, like it's just where's your line? You just got to know where your line is on like, oh, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to control my emotions in this situation, but when it matters, I will. Yeah. Those lines will get blurred on you real quick. Well, the... The funniest thing, and I'm, I've referred to the last dance, Michael Jordan, a thousand times probably this year because it's the greatest thing that ever happened. And one of one of the, my favorite line about the whole thing is they said Michael Jordan was the best at being present, dude, like just being present. And it's unbelievable how difficult it is to do to be present in every moment and and make the focus of that moment be winning, um, being checked in mentally and. So if I could, if I could literally do anything, I've, I've, I've gone through success. I've gone through failure, blah, 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 whatever. The moments when I was at the best in my career and it was so belligerently obvious, like feeling it in my brain was when I was the most checked in and I knew how to control my own stuff that was going on, be it breathing, be it any emotions being making an out, the result of a previous at bat success, whatever. It, it's awesome. It's an awesome feeling. Cause it's, you were talking about out of body. This feels in body where you, everything slows down. The whole world slows down for you. Um, and that's unbelievable. So to that point, you asked me about the Maurer story before we all have to have, we all need emotional outlets, right? We all, there are times when I think you wouldn't be human if you, if you didn't have one. And Joe Maurer is the, the sweetest guy on the planet, literally like the nicest guy. Everything you see is what you get. You know, when he says hi to you, you walked up to him, you walked up, hey, what's up, Joe? Nice to meet you. Hey, Chris, how are you, man? Nice, like, pleasure to meet you. It's like, yeah, I'm happy for you. Like, just very, what, just normal, low key, right? He's Minnesota nice. Yeah, Minnesota nice. Perfect. So it's like my fourth game in the big leagues, sixth game in the big leagues. And, you know, I've never seen this guy do anything but either get two hits a game or, just be like super chill when he didn't. So he makes like, and he would always come to the dugout. And if I feel bad for the people that are listening to the podcast, he would just like sit in the dugout, like straight up hands on his knees, very proper. So he's just like super like the same all the time. He randomly like makes an out. And I don't even know. I think it was like his second at bat and he had gotten like a bad call in his first at bat. And then this time he kind of like hooked the ball. He's still hitting three thirty or whatever. But he comes in, he goes into the tunnel, and all of a sudden, I just hear, wow, like just noise everywhere. So then I like kind of poke my head around, and like the bat was like blown up, and comes back out, and he like walks in, sits back down, he's like just normal, like straight face. And then 
he noticed that there were a couple splinters from the bat on the ground, so he went and, like, slowly picked them up and threw them more. <laughs> I was like, who breaks their bat and picks up the splinters on the ground? But after that, he was just right back to check in. So maybe that's what you need. Some people have the punching bags. Joe decided to do it with his bat. That I was so overwhelmed at that moment. I said, wow, Joe Mauer does that too? So crazy. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Joe Maurer, closet bat breaker. How about that? <laughs> Let's get into the next topic. How do you balance life as a student athlete with commitments to school, work, friends? The quote, I just want to be a normal kid. Mm, felt it. Uh, I'll start with this one. So I worked at Domino's Pizza when I was in high school. I worked at BJ's Wholesale Club when I was in high school. I can make a pizza. <laughs> I, can, I can make a pizza, throw it. I can, yeah, I can do all that. Um, you know, spending time, I ran winter track to, to stay in shape for baseball. I basically didn't go skiing or snowboarding for like seven years, eight years, because I didn't want to get hurt. Um, the balance I think is fake. I don't think the balance is going to be really, really shifted to whatever it is that you're trying to get. You're, you know, you're, you're making sacrifices and some players are just good enough that they don't need to make sacrifices. Like I was reading a thing about Chad Ochocinco about how like he eats McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and still has like the physique of a Greek God. Um, I was never that good. So for me to get to where I wanted to be, I had to not go out and do the, you know, be in the party scene, just didn't even go near it whatsoever. Cause number one, I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to get suspended or not be able to play because of a social decision I made. Um, but it was also like after school, I was in the weight room. I was getting good grades cause I needed to get, like, I wanted to go to Dartmouth. So uh, I needed really good grades to go to Dartmouth. Um, I worked because I wanted to get, my own vehicle. So I needed to have money to buy a vehicle. So, um, you end up for me, my experience was you end up being surrounded by other like-minded people. So your social circles become your teammates and the kids that are working harder next to you. And those bonds get pretty tight. Uh, my experience getting to college was that there's more people like you, um, not just in your sport, but in other sports. So that the athletes tended to kind of get along because you're, you're all fighting the same fight. So <laughs> there's a lot of camaraderie there. Um, I just think that the, the concept of balance doesn't really exist. And you're going to have those, I just want to be a normal kid moment, but you don't, it's just a, you, it's just a, a, a time when you're, you're tired, you're stressed and you're just feeling pressure. And if you don't love it, you're not going to do it. So you, you have those moments of, I don't even know, I don't want to call it weakness, but you have those moments of like, why am I doing all this? And those moments are usually pretty fleeting and Maybe there's a haircut rule, Chris. If you say it three times, you got to get a haircut. Rule three, man. Rule three. I I'm curious to hear Dustin here because I've talked too much anyway. Um, yeah, obviously this was a you know a topic that I posed, and that quote is from me. Like I remember saying that to my dad when I was 17 or 18 years old. Um, I don't remember the exact age. I just remember I remember the, like the location was literally like in our living room, and Bobby, what you just said about like, it's just like this little, this little moment and you don't really, I don't think I never really meant it, but that little, that little thing where you're like, I don't know if it's, it's FOMO, you know, or, or what, but I, I remember that moment pretty, pretty vividly. And then it went away. And I'm pretty sure my dad's like, 
no, you don't. I'm pretty sure that was the response. Was like, no, you don't. Like, you don't. You you want it too bad. Like, you you put too much work into to baseball um, to like just let it go away. So just to just to so you can go party when you're 17 years old and and to get into trouble and make all these bad decisions that aren't going to set you up at all to deal with life. Um, it's actually going to set you back like that. It, it was never, it, it was never a, a true thing. It was just that, that little mental break or mental weakness uh, that crept in for a split second and was said uh, the balance piece. You, you can't, you can't truly have a 33%, you know, school, 33% work, 33% friends, like, you're leaving a percent off, but, uh, you can't do it. Like, it, what, do, what do you want? Like, what do you want? Do you want to, do you want to play at the next level? Do you want to just go to college? Do you just want to go to college to put, to go to school? Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Um, but if that's your, if that's what you want and you just want to go to college to go to college, what are you doing playing baseball? Why don't you take that extra energy and apply it to, getting better at whatever field you want to go into for, for your life. For me, it was baseball was the number one, the number one thing. And when that question that, that was asked, you know, earlier, like knowing what your major is when you go into college, I had no idea. It was like, I was going to college to play baseball. That was like the only thing. And I think that's where that little break happened because I had all these friends that were having all this fun and my sole focus was to play baseball at the next level. Um, I had set goals from a super young age of after reading Derek Jeter's book, um, one of his autobiographies where he kind of talked about his, his path. And I, I remember like one of his big things we talked about was, uh, setting goals. And I mean, I was a young kid when I did this and it was, Hey, I want to, I want to make these all-star teams. I think I was like 10 when I set these goals, I want to make the all-star team, you know, finish out my little league years. And then at the time it was like, Hey, I want to make you know, little league all-stars 13, 14, because there was still little league at 13 and 14, like pretty heavily played back then. And then I had, my goal was I wanted to make varsity baseball as a freshman. And then the next year was to, or the next goal was to play college baseball, pro baseball, big leagues. Um, so this, this goal setting process, that's what I wanted from such a young age. So I prioritized my things. I prioritized, Hey, I was in the cage. Um, you know, I, I had this, this joke with my, not even a joke, I talked to my high school players the other day. They're like, Hey, what you, what was your squat max in, in high school? We were being like, I didn't, didn't lift in high school. Like, and then I thought back to it and I was in team, like our team lifted whenever our team was working out, I worked out, but I didn't have access to, you know, facilities like we have nowadays. Like I, we step out on the floor to a 6,000 square foot gym. We've stepped next door. There's 10,000 square feet of baseball space. Like we got a freaking turf infield here. I didn't have that stuff. It was, Hey, what do you have at your high school? And I had a cage and I had a field. So that's what I prioritized my skill work, but it was seven days a week. It was, you know, Sunday afternoon when you could be at the house or, uh, at the beach, you know, I was 15, 10, 15 minutes away from the beach growing up. Could have been at the beach. No, we were at the baseball field, T work, front sauce, dad throwing bad BP. Sorry, dad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's what that's what we prioritize. So the, the idea of having a, a truly balanced life wasn't there. Now you do need mental breaks. You do need you do need an outlet other than just your sport. Or I do think you you get burnt out. Um, 
what is that, you know, what is that other hobby? I still played video games when I was, when I was in high school. The, uh, that might've been my little, my little break. Um, I got into not a fair amount of trouble, but you know, I did, I did, I made some bad decisions in high school that looking back, I shouldn't have done. Um, so that was my, I think my rebellious attempt at being a normal kid. And, uh, but in the, at the end of the day, prioritized what needed to be done. And for me, that was playing baseball. I wish the screen had switched to me a couple of times because my back just jacked up really badly. So I'm glad nobody had to see that other than you guys. Um, no, that's, I think what everything you're saying is, and I think we'll probably all agree. It never felt like work to me. It didn't feel like work when I was growing up because it was what I wanted to do. I still, to this day, I'm convinced that if you do what you want to do in life, it'll never feel like work. A job will never feel like work. A sport will never feel like work. Um, I, I just think you commit. I, I never felt like there was no balance. Like I, I, let's just say you commit four, five hours a day to training, whatever that looks like, right? Whether it's lifting, running, hitting, skill. Like there's still 19 hours in the day. You know, you only sleep for like eight of them. And maybe in college, less, more, I don't know, who knows. But I, I, I never felt like I was, anything was taken away from me. You know, I wanted to be at the cage. I wanted to be, you know, at practice. I wanted to be at all the places where baseball was happening. I didn't want to be at parties. I didn't want to be drinking. I didn't drink in high school. And I didn't really drink in college either. But you could go be social and not need those things that everybody else needed, right? So... Um, you know, I wanted to go hit BP and have my dad throw me a bad BP. You know how many times my dad dotted me? Did your dad ever dot you? Bobby, you, your pops never threw you BP, right? Like, no, <clears throat> big computer guy. Yeah. <laughs> Not a big BP guy. Yeah. So I don't think, I don't think my dad ever did it on purpose. I think it just kind of happened. Lou dotted me more times. <laughs> he hit me in the legs, but I'd always get him back because he, he didn't know how to throw BP without the L screens that have the triangle. So I would always square him up right in the, like, the kidney, I guess, or whatever. <laughs> one time I thought I shot him. Um, I was probably 15, and I hit one right back to the screen. And Lou, get behind the triangle. Kept telling him, get behind the triangle, get behind the triangle. And he didn't and get hit. But I think with all that comes, you just have to be aware, man. You just have to work. You have to work at your craft and be diligent about what your hard work looks like, how you're doing your hard work. Be smart about your hard work. And to your point, Dustin, I didn't have access to, you know, what 180 performance looks like. I didn't have access to any of that. I, I was lucky enough that my high school Legion coach owned an indoor like facility, I guess we'll call it. It was cement floors, bad lights, and single-wheel pitching machines. And in my high school batting cage was literally looked like a dungeon. It was literally a dungeon. Bad, like the worst lights in the history of the world. The worst couldn't see and that was it so you just figured it out you went and played you went outside you threw you hit did whatever you could if you had to go pick up the balls you went and picked up the balls it was what it was and you just did it because you wanted to but and yes i didn't lift a weight probably until i was a freshman in college i don't think maybe even a sophomore i lifted a couple when i was a freshman mostly bicep curls oh yeah show off for the girls for the girls man that was That's all it. you did that was what we needed we needed biceps and abs come on 
All right. Last thing I want to say on that topic is uh, like, I think it's 10% of high school players playing college. So if you're trying to be normal, uh, 90% of normal is not making it to college ball. All right. Next topic, a little bit lighter, different kind of feel here. Where do jumps and hitters come from? When do they tend and when do they tend to come? So at what point are hitters making big improvements and what causes that? Broad jumps or vertical jumps? Performance jumps, Christopher. Every direction from the middle out. Middle out. (laughs) (laughs) Datas, manipulating datas. Manipulating datas. Um, Where do jumps and hitters come from? Uh, Consistent work. I think would be the the easiest answer to that. Um, the the once a week lesson player uh, tends to not make as many strides forward. They, uh, you know, I, I hate asking the question and getting the answer. Hey, when's the last time you hit? Because I know, like you look at a player, you, you work with a player every week, you know. When's the last time you hit? Uh, last week with you. I'm like nice, that ain't it. So the first step in that in that lesson player is. The first 30 minutes are trying to build back to where you were the week before. Sometimes it's more than that. Like sometimes you, you can't, you can't go through new topics. So it's the biggest jumps is when you, you have a plan and you execute by day in and day out, putting the work in, you know, three, four, two, like a two, three, four day a week program would be a uh, kind of ideal for that, I guess, to have some, some structure to, to your work. And, uh, I, I, they, they happen with consistency. Um, Justin Turner, I, I know, talked about when he did us when he did his, his swing change. It took an entire off season, every single day, like I think it was six six out of the seven days out of the week, trying to like hitting, trying to figure it out. Not an hour a week, like it was hours upon hours and thousands upon thousands of swings to try to figure something out. And that's an elite level player. That's not a uh, an average high school player that doesn't fully have proprioception of their body, and like that that's an elite level player. So jumps are going to come from just putting the work in. And, um, I think when they come is dependent on, on the the player. I don't think there's any set set number of like when that light bulb finally goes off and you're like, I can feel it or like, that's it. And for another, we never say we figured it out when we're talking about hitting because you think you got to figure it out blows up on you. So that, that, I think it's just consistency and work and having a plan. You brought up Turner, right? Turner had already played in the big leagues when he started making his swing changes. So, and, and people ask me that a lot, like, when, how did you do it, right? In the off season, I really went into the swing change. And first of all, let's clarify one thing. If I don't hit just about every day, six days out of seven at least during the season, which is normal because you play every day at the professional level. But if, if I wasn't hitting every day and or at least five days out of seven in the off season i felt like i wasn't doing anything right because again you just it's like learning how to walk again it's hitting is not one of those things there's so much feel and and mechanical need for repetition to just you want to make it so that it's like breathing it's second nature it's a subconscious act and having to think about how I'm going to hit a ball on the outside corner versus how I'm going to hit the ball on the inside corner. We're trying to make the, the proactively reactive decision-making show up. And if you're not doing it all the time, it's, it's almost impossible because you correlate, you know, results to feels and thoughts and things like that. So um, 
when do you see the biggest jumps? It's, you know, one of two things, right? In high school, like, you grow. You just grow. You become, you start becoming a man, right? And whether that's through an off-season of training or playing another sport, and whatever it may be, when you when you grow, when you have a, a jump in, in, in physicality. Um, but, yeah, for sure, it, they come over time. And as a player, like you said, you don't, you don't necessarily feel them unless you make a drastic change. You don't, and it's hard to apply the feeling of what your change was until you get into a game. So in the offseason, it's really hard because if, if you're not facing live pitching, if you're not taking at bats, if you're not experiencing success, failure, then it becomes difficult to even interpret those things because at the end of the day, for me, it was always results in the game. Now we have different ways of tracking stuff. So in the cage, you can really. Remember, I remember all the time when I was in high school, I'd hit a ball, my first ball of the off season. And obviously I was trying to hit a pull side tater because why wouldn't I? Um, I'd be like, oh my God, that ball's going so much harder than it was last year. And really, did I know? No way. Now we have all the, we have all the data to track that stuff and tell us and, and reaffirm things to us. Um, it, to me, it's so much easier now to actually pay attention to where you are. Um, and in some capacity, I think it might be, it might be a little bit paralyzing too. Like if you use, detect too often and you're not focused on the right things, then it's easy to just get caught in the exit velocity trap. It's easy to get caught in the, I want to hit a homer trap. And I think that's like, to me, the jumps become jumps in consistency and awareness of how to handle yourself in the batter's box. And, and those are hard to recognize unless you're out on the field. I felt like I played six years of independent ball and I was the same player every year. I was the same. And then, maybe a little bit better, a little bit worse, a little bit better, a little bit worse. But then really when I, when I started to really become obsessed with the swing and, and how I was training and performing and, and thinking about the back going to the baseball, that's when it happened for me. But with young hitters, I think when, when they have aha moments, it's really cool when you explain something to them that they didn't really get. And, and those light bulb moments, you never know what they're going to be, but they happen and it's, it's cool to see them. Yeah. My comments on this are, like Chris was saying, players get older, they go through puberty, they get stronger. It just happens. They're gonna, they're gonna experience just a, a different kind of batted ball experience just because they're bigger and stronger. Uh, biggest thing for me was when hitters started developing awareness and being educated about the swing and what they were trying to do and having a plan, and being deliberate. When when hitters took ownership of their work, that's when the real change happened because I could tell you what you're doing wrong every single swing. When I saw a hitter making adjustments on their own, when they were starting to feel their way through stuff, when they, when they stopped themselves mid round to be like, Hey, what do you got on this? You know, asking better questions. That's when I knew things were happening. That's when I knew the player was starting to make some changes. Uh, the other thing I want to say on it is that I think it's funny that the best players in the world are the ones who practice the most. So, if you if you look at major league players, minor league players, they're taking batting practice every single day. They're taking hundreds of swings every single day with their early work, with their on-field work. They're practicing more than anybody, and they're the best. So if you're trying to be better and you're only doing a one-hour lesson once a week, what are you doing? Like what are you I'm doing? not even scratching the surface in the hour. <clears throat> I'm not I'm really not. Like three, four-hour cage sessions, but – the funny thing is most of it is, is not centered around swinging. It's around talking about the swing and talking about the feels that go with it. 
that's those are my favorite when you have those sessions how many times we stay in the cage with rich gedman for three hours when we were starting professional baseball like i just in the off season we'd be sitting there talking i'd take a hundred swings in a night and we'd be there for three hours you know it's not all about the swing the swings need to just have the right intent it's impossible to take four thousand swings in a day like not i mean your hands will literally fall off but the practice needs to have direction and and it needs to be thought out and it needs to be you know you need to correlate feel to real all the time yep all right post show dustin and i were talking before we started recording uh chris you already said you were terrible in high school you didn't even play you didn't even start your junior year what, what an loser. idiot what loser. Loser. but i tell you what i got one of those got a couple dustin, of those. there we go <laughs> dustin was like what's that, right, what's that? dustin goes i'm definitely the best high school baseball player and i'm like, oh, no, let me uh let me let me peacock a little bit. Let's see what I, he's like. I played four years of varsity baseball. I hit seven hundred before they called me up this yeah. freshman year. Uh, Bradley, just get senior year stat. Senior stat line. Uh, senior year stat line would have been, I think it was twenty eight games. Twenty. There it is. Nobody can see you, Chris. Nobody can see it. It's okay. Keep I'm talking. gonna keep talking. I'm just gonna leave it here. Yeah. That, fine. That, 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 that. Twenty eight games. I uh, hit five thirty. That five thirty four with like seven homers and 30 something RBIs, bunch of doubles. It only struck out like five times, maybe. Um, if we're going back, opening that yearbook up, like Chris is opening the yearbook. His just like, looks like a nicer yearbook over there. No, my senior year, I only, I hit 306 with no homers. And Chris I don't is know doing how his many, best Jeff Fry impression right now. I don't <laughs> know how many mistakes. Um, yeah, my senior year, 306, past. no homers. Oh, sorry. I, this is my clear... Um, this is when the Baseball Writers of America named me New England Player of the Year. The year I hit 321 in the big leagues. But we're talking about my senior year. That's right. Um, hang on. Uh, the, uh, oh, yeah. oh, that's right next to my American League Player of the Week. Stick to the question. What anyway, was the question? Uh, yeah, I was terrible in high school. I had no homer. <laughs> the only homer I hit in high school was it was taken away from me because it rain delay in the four, fourth and a third inning. I hit a homer and I was like, oh, bro, I hit a high school homer. And then it started raining and we had to start the game from the first thing, which what a ridiculous rule, by the way. Stupid rule. I think yeah, they, I, did they change that this year? I don't know. I think, I, that, I think it was this year in the big leagues that they were doing continuations instead of resets. Yeah. yeah. Which is how it should be right. in the first place. If the game doesn't get canceled, then you have to continue. Like, continue. It doesn't start over. Yeah. It's a joke. Yeah. Well, I... Anyway, I, I had to wear it in high school. I wasn't good. So I started my senior year six for 36. And I know that because Lou Colabello kept really in-depth stats, not because Game Changer had him. Lou would have a sheet at home. It was like, look at your stats. You suck right now. Dude, my freshman year, it was funny. My freshman year of college, he would print out the whole Northeast 10. Like he didn't know how to just print one sheet on a computer. So you get this like, this massive like list of stats. Yeah, I, I was not. A very, I hit a lot of doubles because we had a, we played at a huge field, like massive, 600 feet to center. Nobody hit a homer there, so not a good. Dustin wins the who's the better high school player? Yeah, yeah my stat line, I I hit. I think my sophomore year was still the two and three quarter drop fives, so I hit 500 that year. Then uh, the next two years I hit 450 ish. I was like first team all state, but that's New Hampshire, so who cares? Uh, good player, but. Not, I didn't put up his kind of numbers. Pickle out! Are we done? Yeah, we're done. <laughs> All right, pickle out. We out.